Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Malthouse Games Podcast. My name is Delton. I'll be your host today, and with me, as usual, is my lovely wife and yellow player, Haley. Howdy, howdy, howdy. This is the Malthouse Games Podcast, episode number 147. We're a podcast all about board games, card games, tabletop games, role-playing games, things of that sort, and usually beer, but today, coffee. Yes, we have another bag of Starbucks coffee with us this morning because it is currently 9.02 a.m. the day this podcast released, so and we do not want to drink beer early in the morning. Yes, it has been quite a busy week this week, um, and so we tried to find times to record, but there were a couple of them that I declined to because it was my birthday week this week, so I didn't feel like recording on my birthday, and we just ended up not having the time until this morning, which means it's the day the episode comes out. So, Delty Poo, what did we do for your birthday? We went to, there's an old mall in Oklahoma City that is no longer a functioning mall called Crossroads Mall. And every first and third weekend of every month, they have an antiques show, basically, kind of thing at the north entrance. You get to go inside, you pay $2 a person to get in, and then they have what used to be four old stores are just decked out with vendors and all kinds of antiques and stuff. And so we went and hung out there for a couple hours and bebopped around and got some cool stuff. And then we went to have Beatbox, which we never get to have. Um, One of our absolute favorite things. They have the best vegan chicken sandwich ever. So we got to eat there. Where did we go from there? I guess we went to the comic shop. I caught up on some stuff I was missing. You went to another comic shop, caught up on more stuff you were missing. No, the other comic shop wasn't catching up. It was just getting fun stuff. Ah. Yeah, I think so. Uh, And we went to Herd on Herd. We went to Herd on Herd which is downtown Edmond here in town. And it's basically they closed down most of Main Street or the Main Street Broadway. And there's a bunch of food trucks and there's live music and all the stores stay open late. And it's just kind of like a neat uh, little, you know, artsy thing that they do. And uh, it was a good time. We hung out with Mike from the comic shop and his wife and some of her family and got to say hi to Matt from Frenzy Brewing and got to talk to him for a second. And Picked up some frenzy beers. That we will be reviewing on the next podcast, theoretically speaking. I think so. But it was good. It was a good time. We got to have a lot of fun, do some different fun stuff for my birthday. And then this week, I had my very last Saturday training. So as I know I've talked about before, June is our busiest month for folks getting their continuing education as mental health therapists because everybody's licenses are due on June 30th. And so everyone has to get all of their continuing education credits in. And so yesterday was my last Saturday to work at an in-person conference until next year. So I am celebrating today my freedom. I am celebrating today having Jack to do on Saturdays. And so I'm feeling pretty good today. You should be. Plus, it's also a pretty free Sunday for you because after we record and everything and have our breakfast, at some point today, I go to Brian's house for a pay-per-view tonight and you've got just a free evening to chill and relax. Yes, I am going to plan world domination, probably watch Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, have a beer, and take a nap. That sounds good to me, I think. So this week I had a couple of days I was supposed to film, uh, but our filming got postponed, and so I actually had two days off from work. And so one of those days, Delton and I sat down and watched a movie called The Battle of the Algiers. We did. We watched Battle of Algiers from 1966 in preparation for the game of this episode and really enjoyed uh, the movie. It was different than I expected it to be. But I enjoyed it. It was uh, I was surprised it was in black and white for being 1966, uh, even though it's cheaper to film in black and with black and white cameras at the time than it was for color cameras. So I understand that. But it was a very interesting movie that showed a lot of uh, actual 
I say actual, it was reenactments basically of actual historical things and they took the real story of Battle of Algiers and the real people's stories and what happened and got to show it on screen for you. And it was it was fascinating to watch that and then do a little reading. And by that, I mean, listen to Haley reading about uh, the actual Battle of Algiers. So I'll talk more about what I learned in my terrorism class as we talk about the game. Oh, here's the door. Uh, uh. It's straight ahead. It's It's a game. So the game for this episode, after talking about watching Battle of Algiers, is Colonial Twilight, the French-Algerian War, 1954-1962. to uh, Colonial Twilight is designed by Brian Train. Artist, art direction is by Roger McGowan, and it is published from GMT Games. Colonial Twilight is a war game that is part of the coin game series through GMT. Now, the coin series, I have been mostly unfamiliar with until now getting to play Colonial Twilight. This is my first coin game that I've got to play. Coin is a term that basically means counterinsurgency. So all of the games within the coin system are going to function in a similar basis, from my understanding, with, with this one, Colonial Twilight, being the one that's the most different because it's only two players. But the coin system is all built on modern counterinsurgency warfare. Not, I guess not modern, but counterinsurgency warfare built into the game. That's how it functions. There's multiple factions. A lot of times the factions have a bit of asymmetry with, within them. Uh, in the game, but one of them or two of them, depending on what game you're playing, are going to have essentially guerrilla units or um, what's it called when back in the day when the, the Russians would have people sleeper cells. You'll have stuff like that where there's a group of people underground. You may know they're there, but you can't do anything about it until they decide to act or you reveal them, stuff like that. Um, it's very interesting as a style in the game. It makes you think, it makes you play stuff a little differently, but uh, the Coins series is a series full of games focused on counterinsurgency and also representing historical uh, wars or battles with a little more connection between the actual history and the mechanics, I would say, because a lot of actual wars in history, especially ones, um, you know, represented Colonial Twilight. Another game that they have is Fire in the Lake about Vietnam. There is a lot of counterinsurgency. There is a lot of uh, hidden groups and guerrilla warfare, and that's very much represented in these games, and they do it in a way that feels accurate. They do it in a very interesting way that engages you and also makes you think about it. Uh, like I said, the Colonial Twilight is the two-player version. They have Fire in the Lake. Uh, Cuba Libre is the one about the Cuban Revolution. They've got... Oh, now I can't remember the name. They have one that's something like All the Bridges or Burning the Bridges. It's the Finnish one about the Finnish and possibly Russian war. Probably so. And I think it's only three-player. World War II. I think so, yes. And that one's really interesting. So they have a whole bunch. I think uh, this game is the seventh in the coin series, and I think it's the most recent, but it originally came out in 2017, so it might not be anymore. However, if that sounds interesting at all, I would recommend looking into the coin series. Uh, they recommend playing them at the full four-player count for majority of the cases. Fire in the Lake does have an expansion that has a specific two-player scenario, which I'm very interested in because we, me and Haley both find that 
Uh, the Vietnam War just has a lot of very interesting stuff that you don't learn about in your history books. Uh, or at least when you're a child and you learn about it and you never touch on it again. Whenever you attend a school in the Oklahoma public education system, then you really don't learn a lot about the Vietnam War aside from we won, which is not really true. The age at which I found out we did not win the Vietnam War was far too old. So that's just one of those truths of life. How old were you when you learned that the Gulf of Tonkin incident was fabricated? I don't know what that is, if uh, that says anything. Okay. Well, that was that was the event that the United States government said uh, was basically the catalyst for us joining the war, when really we were in Vietnam for years before that, uh, trying to keep the communists from taking over. Uh, basically, what the U.S. government said was that the the Vietnamese army attacked one of our ships in the Gulf of Tonkin, but what really happened was the United States had been surveilling illegally in international waters for a long time and uh, had attacked first. And the uh, Vietnamese army fought back, but they didn't actually sink anything or anything like that. But the United States was like, ha ha, they provoked us, therefore we can get in the war. And like, girl, you've been surveilling these waters for a long time. Uh, all of this came out in like the, the mid-70s. Too, but that's not something that was really talked about because I remember learning about the Gulf of Tonkin incident in, in school and it was, oh yeah, they provoked us and attacked us in the Gulf of Tonkin and like sank one of our ships. And like, no, that's not what happened at all. But what really, so Delton has been talking about getting into coin games for a while. And whenever he talked about this one, the Colonial Twilight, you know, it's about the French-Algerian War. And what really drew me to it is that, you know, I mentioned earlier, uh, I was going to talk more about my terrorism class. So whenever I was in undergrad, I got a minor in emergency management. And part of that was taking some classes on uh, not only disaster mitigation when it comes to natural disasters, but also terrorism and terrorist attacks and what is terrorism, so on and so forth. And for that class, you know, we talked about, you know, the definition of terrorism. It was the first time I really had a class that gave me alternative definitions of terrorism because, you know, coming out of post 9-11, being, being, being like tw 10 years old whenever 9-11 happened and growing up in post 9-11 war, you're like, oh, terrorists are bad and terrorists are those who attack against the government. But it was really the first time that my little 19-year-old brain was, was challenged in that, you know, what, who defines terrorism? And so we watched this movie called The Battle of Algiers, which is one that we watched this week. We watched that in my terrorism class back in the day. And we had to look at, you know, who is the real terrorist in this situation? Is it the Algerians who are fighting for independence from French colonialism? Or is it the French who are, you know, using bombing, using destruction, torture. using intimidation, using torture in order to keep that stranglehold? And so I really feel like this game does a great job of depicting the, the different tactics that each side used. But Delta, do you want to talk a little bit more about what the game actually looks like? I will, yes. Yeah. So... One of my favorite things, I'm not going to try to detail every rule in this game because if you've never played a GMT game, their rule books are laid out in a fashion where you can always find the rule you're looking for. However, learning the game is a bit of a struggle because, and I've talked about this before, number one, introduction, 1.1, general course of play, 1.2, components, 1.3, the map, 1.3.1, map spaces, 1.3.2, Wilayas and sectors, 1.3.3, and it, it, it's like that the entire time. That is the rulebook. So if you've never learned a GMT game from one of these rulebooks, it's like it's really nice because you don't miss hardly anything. There's still a few rules you might have to scope around for to, to clarify, but it's the best way to lay out a very complex game in a, a more concise manner than 
being, you know, wordy and trying to make it, uh, what's the term? You don't want, instead of making your rulebook like a regular where it's teaching you the game and talking to you about things, this is strictly stating the facts. This is how the action works. There's no, you know, anything else. I don't know. Um, this is very organized and very, almost like bullet pointed. It's very clinical in the way that it teaches. Uh, so I'm not going to go over every detail of everything, but I want to make sure I touch on a lot of stuff. Uh, before I dive into more about how it represents that, there are three scenarios in this game. The short game, which took us three hours, because <laughs> partially because it was late in the evening, which means my medication is less effective. We're both tired, and also it, there's a lot to think about in the game. I could definitely t- so I told Delton like if he's on his medication or not. Like I married him without medication, that's okay. Like he doesn't have to be on ADHD medicine if it helps him. That's awesome. But you could definitely tell it ever was wearing off about nine o'clock at night because he'd be drumming on the table, looking at the board. What am I going to play? Go and turn his attention to Penny. Start jumping on the table again. Talk about something off topic. I say, Delton, you got to play your game. Oh, yeah. It happens, you know? It happens. It happens. Uh, There's also the middle length game and then the full game. Uh, The full game includes all the cards, all the special things, all the events that can happen, where the short game and middle game are slightly modified. So if you want the full experience, which we have not played yet, it's the full game, but you really have to have the time to sit down and do it. And I really wouldn't recommend it for your first play, just based on how the game functions and how complex it is. But that being said, when Haley referenced watching this movie in her terrorism class uh, and how, you know, who defines what a terrorist is, I think my favorite way that this game depicts it, and I think it's so good the more I've thought about this game. So in a space on the board, there is essentially the number of the population, which Uh, From my understanding, a single number on population estimates uh, was like around 100,000 people, something like that. Uh, Population can be like zero through three. There can be population. There can be bases, yours or your opponents. So you can have up to two bases on on a space. You can have government control or FLN control. Now, FLN is the oppositional force against the French. It stands for the... Front de Liberation Nationale, which is essentially it's a it's a liberation unit. And so that's actually the political party that's still in power today. Is it really? So they were uh, it was so whenever they so spoiler alert, FLN won, French withdrew, so on and so forth. Uh, but the FLN actually was the sole political party that could remain in power until the 80s. And then they allowed for multi party system. But uh, they were reelected, I think, in like the mid 90s or 2000s. And they've been in power ever since. That's kind of crazy. But uh, yeah, so that's the that's the uh, faction that you play. If you play the Algerian people, you're the FLN. Uh, the other people play the French. So the spaces can have government control, FLN control, or neutral. That's just who has the most pieces there. Uh, and then there is also a support. They can either oppose the French control, they can be neutral, or they can support French uh, uh, you know, colonialism, French's control of Algeria. And something you can do is different actions in the game have the capability of putting a terror marker in a space on the board in one of those regions, whether it be in the city of Algiers, whether it be in any of the neighboring sectors of the city and things like that. Uh, You can put down these terror markers. Generally, when you put down a terror marker, it's because you've done something terrible and terrifying to the people there. But here's what I love. And this is I I truly think this is a, a fantastic way that this is represented in the game because it's not represented that you are doing something that's like terrorism. It's that the people in that space are perceiving your action as terrorism. 
which means I could, being that I played the FLN side, I could have came in to one of the sectors or whatever, and I could have added terror. There's an action on my side called terror. And it literally, uh, you go into a section where you have an underground gorilla, you activate them, and then you place a terror marker, and then you set the space to neutral. If they were for the French government, they're now neutral. If they were opposing the French government, they're now neutral. Well, the funny part is I could do that anywhere on the board. Where am I focusing that? Only where you have control and they're supporting you. Then I am, you know, having my people do terror there to drop the support of the French government. You had actions, and I can't remember what it was. I think it was where you, like, basically do a sweep and, like, reveal the gorillas, the underground gorillas, and then you come in and, like, annihilate, basically. It's like a, you know, you come in, expose them, and try to eliminate them. That provided terror, but you never did that where they supported you because that terror would drop to neutral, I believe. And so we're both doing bad actions to change the support of the people, which side that they're for, but it's actually only terror in the space you're doing it, and we're picking spaces of opposing sides, therefore they perceive it that way. Does that make sense? It does, and I think the movie does a good job of depicting this too. And so this movie is uh, praised for being very representative of what happened. Um, and so it was actually banned in France for about five years after it was released. But there's a part in the movie whenever some of the French soldiers go into the quarantined uh, FLN-controlled areas and they initiated terrorist attacks to kind of make it look like... Those are they left bombs, right? Those are they left bombs, yeah. To kind of make it you know, look like the other side was you know, blowing up things, so on and so forth, because you know the French wouldn't be over there because it's after the curfew. It's after curfew. No one else is going to be here but the FLN. And so it's it's really interesting. And, you know, when you when you play the game, so as you're going through the deck, you're revealing a card each round and you wait until the propaganda cards pop up to to score. So there's three propaganda cards. You don't score the first propaganda card. But after, at the third propaganda card, you check to see if anybody has one. If not, whoever has the most points wins. Whoever is the closest to their goal wins. And so uh, basically on the French side, what you're just trying to do is just contain. You can't really get rid of all the FLN because when it comes to the FLN, you have to reveal them. Then you have to kill them. So like me as a French side, I see these little FLN people all around the board and I know they're FLN, but because I haven't revealed them, I can't do anything about it. And so my ultimate goal is just to, okay, can we just keep everyone as neutral or happy as possible until the propaganda comes out? I'm not really looking at eradicating everyone. I'm just trying to make sure everything is is squashed and everything looks good on my side until propaganda is revealed. But what was your goal, Delty? Uh, yes, that's, that's something before I talk about my goal. So as the FLN player, all of your units are gorillas and they're a like hexagonal cylinder and it's upside down where it shows just a flat black top and you put those on the board, you move them around the board, you get them positioned in different places. They are the ability or give you the ability to do your different actions And only if you activate them for whatever, whether it be combat or uh, different actions, committing terror, or if Haley activates them by revealing them through a sweep or some kind of other military military thing, then they flip over to show the crescent moon and star because I believe that majority of the FLN was also from the Muslim side of Algeria. They're wanting to create an Islamic state. That's right. Thank you. Uh, and so it's that's the that's the symbol they use for the depiction. And so you flip it over and you see the crescent and star and you're like, oh, those ones are active. 
And so then you have active people, which means they've now been revealed to the government, the French government. And so I like that when they're face down and underground, they know, you know, they're there, but you don't know, like thematically, you don't know who it is. You know, someone here is, is part of the FLN, but you have not a clue what person it is until they happen to be revealed, whether by force or by choice. And so I really enjoyed that. But on the FLN side of the game for me, my goal is to basically try to force the French out or try to uh, take over different regions and push their support to my side. I want bases out. I want as many FLN bases as I can get on the map, uh, which I had at the end of the game, all 15, actually for, I guess for a while. And then I want to come in and the, the, the cities and the main regions of the board where there is two or three population I want to get in there, kick your support out, and make them oppose you as the French government. And so that's my entire goal. So Haley's trying to just maintain with a few people here and there, and I'm trying to come in and start swaying people all over the board and start doing all kinds of stuff. Uh, one of the ways that uh, the game functions, which Haley talked about, even though this game has cards, it's not like you know a, a game we always refer to with war games, Twilight Struggle, where you have a hand of cards and you're playing cards that are events and things like that. You have a deck and you flip an event. That event card has a top section, which generally supports the government side, and a bottom section that generally supports the FLN side. On your turn, if you choose to use that event card, you can pick which one you want to do. And I really liked that because it's like there's an event, and depending on who picks it depends on how it's perceived or what happens. And I kind of liked that idea of, it's the same event for both people, but it kind of shows two different sides of how it was, uh, how it was received as well as what it did. And I, I just liked that. Like one of them was, um, one of them was some kind of meeting. I don't remember if it was like an Islamic meeting of, um, like uh, heads of the Islamic state or what, but it was like a big meeting. And on your side, it was like, did something bad for, or yeah, I think it did something bad for you or good for you. Like you started stocking up. And on my side, it did something good where I could do something else. But it was like fascinating because it's the same event, but the two sides view it differently. So whoever activates the event gets to use the benefit because that's how they perceived it. And I really enjoyed that with the event cards. I thought that was neat. One thing I want to point out, which is probably my favorite thing in this game, is the way you choose your actions. So there's this little, I almost wanted to say like a pentagram. It or, is kind of like a pentagram. It's like... It's not quite, but yeah... So basically you have different actions and so whoever takes one action, the second person can only take the actions that are next to that action. Yeah, so it's the initiative track and there are five spaces that you can pick. There is always going to be a first player and second player and the two best actions on the initiative track of five, uh, if you take that action, it forces you to be second player the next turn. So what happens is the first player picks and the next player can only pick one of the two adjacent actions to it. And so just to give a, a quick overview, there's five actions. One of them is pass, which is adjacent to the other four. So imagine pass as a house, and the other four actions are the left and right walls, and then the like you draw a house like a little kid, where you draw a square with a triangle on top. The two sides... Like a gingerbread house. Yeah. The two walls of the house, on the left is uh, the event, on the right is oh, your operation, on the roof on the top left is operation and special, and on the top right is limited operation. So those are your different actions along with pass, which is in the house. So if Haley picks the best one, which is execute operation and special activity, the top left roof of that house, 
I can only choose a limited operation, which means I can, I'm very limited. I can do something in a single zone, basically. I can choose an event, which is the event card, or I can choose to pass, but I can't choose the other good action. But Haley picking that one, the best action, also means she's going to go second the next round, which means I'll get first pick. So for her, it's like, well, I get really good turn this turn, but then I'm going to be at the whim of where Delton wants to place. Uh, And so I just, I really liked the initiative track because, yes, there were times where turn order didn't change, but for majority of the game, it was just back and forth and back and forth. It would be Haley goes first, I go second, I go first, she goes second, she goes first, I go second, and it just flip-flopped constantly and there was rare times that it didn't, and I actually really enjoyed that because it made it feel where one player wasn't just getting the best action over and over again, and it felt even throughout the whole game, and some games just don't have that, and I really, really liked that. I liked that it was this simple little track where you pick a thing, your opponent plays next to it, and that's it, and then you reset them, and boom, and you've got these events. I don't know. It, it was surprisingly... Aside from the rules being complex, and yes, every action does take a second because it's like you can target a non-support city or any uh, sector that doesn't have support and does have an underground gorilla to then do this action, which is going to cost this, and here's how you do it. So everything has a prerequisite, essentially. It all has a cost, and then it all has what actually happens when you do that action, so... So it's pretty like advanced in that, but once you get into it, it all makes sense. Like, yes, there are these little prerequisites that can be kind of clunky to figure out at times, but the actions themselves are putting people on the board, moving people around, uh, doing an attack, doing some other stuff, putting some people here, changing this support. Like, it's all simple actions, but the way you have to think about it and the way the game with the prerequisites makes you say, oh, I see, I'm wanting to do this but I may have to make sure that the people of that sector don't support the French government. Otherwise, there's no way my people could come in and be able to accomplish what they're wanting. And thematically, it all just works. And so I've just really enjoyed it. It's a complex game, but it makes me immediately want to play more coin games and also play this again, for sure. Absolutely. And GMT does a really good job because like Delton said, it's a complex game. But once you play a couple of rounds and get the hang of how everything's tied together when it comes to resources you need you know what the logic is to where you can play it actually is really easy to understand now that doesn't mean it's easy to play i lost terribly i i had five delton had 30 yeah you lost really badly i lost really bad because there's one point in the game where delton had this card out and i kept trying to you know establish a coup trying to uh take this card out trying to make this card no longer present and it was was not working my roles were not working well at all but basically, it made it really easy for him to go in and go to my cities and, and turn support and turn support and turn support. And there's just one point in the game where it's like, okay, all of these cities are against me. There is no way that I can get everybody back on my side before propaganda comes out. Because that was a really, <clears throat> a really major part of the French-Algerian War is that not only were the Algerian folks turning against the French government, but Paris started to turn against the French government. And if we, if we look at this time in history... You know, the this is about the time of the Vietnam War as well. So the French withdrew from Vietnam in the 1950s. You know, they're no longer a protectorate of, of Vietnam or a colonial colonizing them. And so uh, this is also the time, you know, whenever the United States is getting into Vietnam. Uh, but this is really the time whenever you're having a lot of live news broadcasts. And so back in, the, in World War II and like Korea, you'd have news broadcasts, but it was like, oh, here's, here's what happened. 
you know, I, I film this, you know, it's sent to my, uh, you know, agency, we cut it, we pre- present it how we want to. Like the government really had a lot more say in what was shown, what wasn't shown. And really everybody was kind of rally around the flag. You know, we have to get through World War II, da 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 da, da. But Vietnam kind of changed that because of technology as well, because you had the live news broadcast. You also had, uh, were able to show things on the ground as they were happening. You know, people had a lot more resistance and felt more comfortable resisting things. And so in Paris and like the... Uh, metropolitan areas of of France, they started to see what was happening in Algeria and in real time. And so they started to also see the, you know, the the bad part of colonialism for the first time. And so they started to turn against it as well. Yeah. And this game does a good job illustrating that and keeping track and making you, you know, focus on that. And they've done such a good job with all of those aspects. And there's multiple things we didn't touch on, which is that French track, the border track, uh, you know, there's uh, the cards that you start the game with, those special event cards. You can play them whenever you want, but different ones cancel other ones out. So you have to debate how long do I want them to have this card, which we also had some like misunderstandings of the rules in terms of those. We've got that figured out now. But there's other little details that we obviously haven't gone over, but the game's just got, it's got a lot and it's got it well represented for the actual history. And I think it just does a good job. Seconded. So hopefully... At BGG Con, because I always go to the bazaar and try to find a few things, I'm really wanting to pick up Fire in the Lake uh, because that's the one that grabbed my attention the f- at first for the coin games. But I think I'm going to have a, at least a list of coin games to keep an eye out for. War! What is it good for? Apparently board games. Hey, what can I get you? I'd like a topic. Any special way? Make it a top shelf topic. Coming up. Enjoy. So before we get into the topic of today's episode, we wanted to review something because we don't have our beer today, so we're not reviewing beer. So instead, we're going to review Oreos. Which one are we starting off with, Delty? So we have two different flavors of Oreos here, uh, courtesy of our friend Lee. Thanks, Lee. And the first one we're going to try is not my favorite of the two, I know from previous facts, but it is the cotton candy Oreo. I can have one and be satisfied now i'm about to have one now i should say both of these are on uh the golden oreo cookie it tastes like cotton candy it really does taste like cotton candy it's not necessarily what i want in an oreo but i appreciate the novelty it tastes like cotton candy but it reminds me of the pre-bagged cotton candy you can buy at the wa- like walmart mm-hmm. it doesn't taste like fresh cotton candy and the cotton candy flavor is good and then the golden oreo cookie is good I just together is kind of odd. I would not want to dip this in milk. It is pink and blue cream, which is strange. We'll save the other one for after the topic. I need a palate cleanser. Damn it. I was excited for this other one, but fine. We'll wait. I'll be more excited when we don't have an aftertaste of cotton candy. Uh, probably true. I'm almost out of coffee, too, so that sucks. Mm. But anyway, so the topic for today, we wanted to talk about war in games. More specifically, the way that war is represented in games, good and bad. So, for example, in Colonial Twilight that we just talked about, how it basically it shows, you know, two sides of the, of the war and how each side did things that could be considered terrorism. Each side did things that mor- uh, morph the support of the people that they are either fighting for or... I guess both of them are fighting for just in different ways, but they support or oppose. And 
it's a good way of it showing two different sides of a war because a lot of times when we talk about war, we look at it from one side, the side that is supposedly correct. And that's just how it is. So we wanted to talk about that, about how war is represented in different games and kind of what's interesting about how it's representing real ideals and real actual things from war. Uh, obviously for us, it's just that we've read about or heard about or watched or something like that. But uh, yeah, so we thought that was a, a decent topic for today. Because I think when it comes to war games, like I'm going to use kind of a, a crude term that I've heard quite a bit, though. Like we don't want to get into what's called war porn. Ah. We're just like romanticizing the war. Um, you don't want to, you know, find just pure entertainment in war because, I mean, war is full of atrocities. I mean, as evidenced by, you know, this game here, you know, there was one point whenever I got the card Napalm. And that was a card that I was able to put out in front of me. And because I had the Napalm ability, I no longer, so typically uh, before I had Napalm, whenever I was fighting in the mountains, it would take two French soldiers to kill one FLN. Well, with Napalm, it was just one to one. Oh, dope. What a great skill. What a great card. But then you think about the reality of it, I'm like, oh, Napalm. That's really yeah. bad. And so whenever you're thinking about war games, like, I want to be careful because, like, I, I, I am someone who likes to read about war and war history. It's one of my favorite things to do. Like, I, I love to read about the Cold War. I love to read about the Vietnam War, World War II, so on and so forth. But I have to be careful, too, that whenever I get excited about learning about things, I also have to be mindful, you know, that these are real experiences that people experience. Mm -hmm. and people are fighting over ideals. There was pain. There were atrocities. There was genocide. There was, you know, all of these bad things. And so we kind of have to remember that whenever we're playing these games. Mm -hmm. And so I, I appreciated this game a lot because... You know, it talked about the history of it, but we also have to kind of be mindful, you know, whenever these cards come out. Yeah, it's great, but, you know, what are we, what are we doing in this yeah. game? And I feel like a lot of the, I don't want to say the good war games, but the best historical war games, I feel like, show you those things and make you, and again, it's one of those moments I've talked about, I feel like, several times in the past, I don't know how long, that a lot of these games want you to participate and they want you to think and they want you to to look at the game and look at what you're doing and try to, you know, put a little thought into it. And a game like this really works better when you do put a thought into, oh, napalm. And then you start registering that. You register what you know. You look at the subject matter. You realize this was a real thing. These cards aren't just fake cards. These are actual, they're all based on actual events during this, you know, French-Algerian War. And so when you when you look at the game like that, and you actually take the time to say, what is this showing me? I feel like that's when you get the most out of games like this. And forgive me, it's been a while since I've played this game, so correct me if I'm wrong, but yeah. like with Memoir 44, you know, one of you is playing the you know, Axis side, one's playing the Allies side, just like yeah. an Axis and Allies. And for me, it just felt a little uncomfortable trying to win as the Nazis. Yeah, because it's that game is very much... Um, it's the introductory war game, right? It's, it's built off of, I believe it's Richard Borg's command and colors system. And it's, I think, I don't know if it's a more simplified version than his normal command and colors. Cause they have command and colors, ancients, command and colors, Napoleonic wars, a bunch of stuff like that. But essentially it's a board of hexes. You have soldiers on both sides. The board's divided into three spaces from MR44, or three sections, a left, a middle, and a right. And you have cards in your hand, and the card could say, in the middle section, you may move one 
you know, uh, space of people and attack. And that's what you do. It's a very simple game, but there's no, you know, there's no further detail into it, which if you wanted a game that you could, you know, play that style, I mean, there's a reason Memoir 44 is popular, right? It's a good game. It's simple. It's easy to introduce people to, and it's fun, but it doesn't have any of the reality mixed in, which not everybody wants in war games. And that's honestly one of the things we should consider too, is that that's true. Some people want to, they want to play a game of that style, which you can't find without it being a quote unquote war game. But this removes some of the things that are hard to think about or hard to, to confront maybe. Um, so that's one thing with Memoir 44, but I also do think that had it gone a little further for me and you, I think as well, it would be, it would be nice to see it sort of like how this is, it's actually representing a, a lot more of the real things. It's just not the kind of game that, you know, focuses on that. Yeah. Cause I think it was uncomfortable playing the French colonists too. Mm-hmm. Like I, it, we, we assigned the roles randomly. And so I, I was assigned to play the French side. But I think what separates it from Memoir 44 is that it really has you reflect on the atrocities. Oh, what am I doing? Oh, I'm using napalm. Oh, I'm using terrorism. Oh, look at that. I'm using propaganda. And so it doesn't feel good. I mean, it's part of the strategy, but it does have you pause and reflect on the impact of colonialism and state-funded terrorism and things like that. Well, part of it, too, is the scale of the games is very different. This is the scale of an entire war over a whole region, and Memoir 44 is one battle. Yeah. So there's not all there's also not a lot of space within a single battle like Memoir 44 for it to focus on a lot of that. That's fair. So there's also that. This I feel like the scope and scale is is very, very different between the two. So that's also a consideration. And then I think you have something like Twilight Struggle, where mm-hmm. you know you're both sides are, you know, trying to take over, trying to do the space race. And it really doesn't really show you the bad side. <laughs> It, I mean, it doesn't. It, that game, on on scope wise, pulls out further than Battle of Algiers for sure because it's like a global scale. Um, it doesn't show you a lot of that. It gives you cards based on historical events, which you can read and look at, but it it doesn't really lend you know lend itself. Now, given the Cold War wasn't an actual war, but there was a lot of it was like a political war and and stuff like that, right? More so. Yeah, it was more of a, a political war, uh, mm-hmm. proxy, like establishing proxy wars all across the globe, so on and so forth. Yeah. But, I mean, it doesn't really show, you know, the torture, the experiments, the, you know, attempted biological warfare. So I love Twilight Struggle. I've tried it multiple times before. It's one of my favorite games. And like Del said, it goes very in-depth into, you know, historical events. And there's all of these different tracks you have to pay attention to. Which is, which is important for the Cold War. Because like you said, it's not just like fighting one-on-one. Who's going to kill as many troops? Like, no, it's, it's space race. It's global domination. It's ideology, so on and so forth. But that one, you know, it, it, it doesn't show you the bad. Like, what am I doing as Russia to take over? What am I doing as the United States? And so uh, I feel like even though Twilight Struggles is my favorite game, I feel like Colonial Twilight does a better job of like making you sit in the reality of it. I think so. And I think part of that, uh, again, comes to scope where Colonial Twilight zooms in enough that you can see just this one country's, you know, struggle in this war between two people, where with Twilight Struggle, it's a worldwide thing where all you're doing is simply swapping a number for a number. There's a little bit less, you know, it's less zoomed in. But what I think Twilight Struggle does really well with representing real war is the fact that real war is not like Memoir 44, just one battle. Real war is not just, you know, the Battle of Algiers, just these two peoples control over this region. 
there's the space race, there's the politics part, there's this, there's that, there's over here, there's over there, there's what are we doing, how are they responding? There's so many facets and elements to the to be analyzed at every waking moment. I could not imagine being anybody involved in a war at the at the level in which they're saying, what all do we have going on? And then somebody pulls out a giant ass board like Charlie in Always Sunny with all these red lines attached. And they're like, well, over here, there's so much to manage and so much to consider. And if you ignore one single aspect, just like in Twilight Struggle, you know, the space race, boom, game's over. You move this over here, boom, nuclear war. Like any one aspect, if it's not focused on at least at some in some manner with a certain amount of attention, that's going to be it. And so I like the way that it represents that. It represents that it's not a single focus. It's not this single battle. It's this massive thing with all these elements. So that's one of the reasons I put it on here is I really like that uh, uh, representation from the game. I like that as well. And because like for me, I know I've talked about like between turns, uh, you know, I like to to strategize. And so it helps me to like pay attention to all these different things. Mm-hmm. But, you know, with Colonial Twilight, it has a little bit of that. Because, like, for example, there yeah. is a card that is the UN resolution. You know, the so basically what happened was, you know, the United States was a supporter of, of the French. And there was one meeting at the UN where not necess- so that not necessarily that the United States went against French, the French, but they stopped backing the French in this. Yeah. And so it, it kind of talks about that, too. And so it was... Uh, I forget what the card actually did, but I know it affected the way that the uh like the Parisian track mm-hmm. was. So like, you know, the 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 Parisian track was like, how do the people in Paris think about what's happening in Algeria? And it affected that negatively whenever the United States no longer supported the French. Yep. And so like it also had cards like Morocco. Uh, you know, Morocco had a bunch of you know, like Delton said, mm-hmm. agents that were hiding out in there. And like there's parts of the board which we didn't really touch on too. Um, of, you know, pulling Morocco onto your side or... Yeah, so M- Morocco and Tunisia are both, uh, at the time, Morocco and Tunisia, Tunisia, I believe, were both also under French control. I think Tunisia was Italian. Italian? Yeah. Well, they were both not independent, and there is a card in the game that uh, I think is either not in the short game or has a capability of being one of the random events, but it gives them both their independence, which did happen before Algeria got its independence. So once those become independent states, you can do more stuff with them. But in the beginning, you can just move your units from there. You can pull people in because they there was a lot of uh, people kind of doing the same, had the same ideology, had the same you know goals. Um, but I, it, exactly, it did have that, though, where you had to focus on that as well. So something else we have on here, we have two more that we put on our little list. Um, I'll briefly touch on Root. From Cole Worley, which we've talked about from later games. Very popular. I like the game a lot. I haven't played it in forever. We need to because I have literally everything except for the new Kickstarter stuff. And uh, it is essentially a coin game without being a coin game. Because it has, you know, the these people that are just out and about doing this stuff. And I can't remember if it's the Woodland Alliance or who it is where you put support tokens and then out of nowhere you pop up and boom, suddenly there's units at that little forest clearing or whatever that's a coin game, right? That's that's counterinsurgency. That's where that comes from. It's the same kind of ideals. And so Root very much on a on a more whimsical uh, fantasy level represents a similar style of gameplay when it comes to, I want to say it's the Woodland Alliance and whatever, is it Marquis the Cat or something like that? But I wanted to point that out that this is, that's a, that's a, a light version. There's one more game that a lot of people say 
is as close to a coin game as you can get without being a coin game, which is uh, Labyrinth War on Terror 2001 to question mark? Question mark. I think yeah. it says. Um, it's kind of a blend of Twilight Struggle and a kind of the coin games, you know, hidden agents that can then flip over and, and do that. Uh, we've only played it one time. I do not remember enough to actually comment further on it. But I do know that it has similar elements to that blended with some of the stuff from Twilight Struggle. So now I feel like we need to play that again and give it more of a fair shake. Yeah, I do too. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember playing it and it was it was a very interesting game. It had a lot of the historical elements. Uh, I always hate to say that war games are fun. Yeah. Like I, I enjoy the experience, but also I don't enjoy the war by any means. But uh, it was one that I definitely want to pull out again. Well, I think the way that war games get fun is directly to our last game to talk about here, which is War of the Ring, second edition, more specifically, which is the Lord of the Rings board game that me and Haley bought. And we t- did we talk about it on the podcast? We haven't reviewed it yet. Okay, because no. I want to play it again at some point. I'm so sorry, but I want to play it again. That was a six-hour experience. It's a hell of a game. But uh, that is a way to experience a war game and be able to have fun because it's a fantasy setting based on a fantasy thing. It's you know easier to... Uh, easier to drink that cup of tea, you know, than something like Colonial Twilight. But something that I love about War of the Ring, which is another thing that in wars that happens, I like that as the free folk, which is, you know, the side of the fellowship and all the it, essentially good units, not Saruman and all that bad stuff. Um, I really like that in the beginning, there's only like one or two uh, peoples that are actually able to be on your side and able to be recruited and used for military as the game goes and certain conditions are met more cities go oh this is actually a problem all right fine you can use my units you can we'll fight in the battle and i really enjoy that aspect of like everyone sees these things going on but as one threat becomes greater then these different cities start realizing that they they also have to join in and they can be convinced things like that but i like the idea that uh, one person's war affects more than just themselves. Like, even if that's just a blanket statement of whatever, you know, you may think that, oh, it's just us versus them. Is it, though? Was it just the U.S. versus Nazi Germany? No, there's a shit ton of other countries involved in that on every side. And we came in late. And we came in extremely late. And yeah, in the 11th hour, and we're just like, we're going to win this for America. And we're like, okay. The only not- soldiers we haven't lost over the last five years. Oh, we did it. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's. Uh, it's there's more to it than just two, you know, one one side versus another side. Now, given again, this is a fantasy game about an actual evil, uh, you know, Sauron and all his armies of, you know, I was not everything. evil. You were pretty evil. I won. You did win, but you were very Before evil. Before I write history, yes. But I just, I really like that aspect of that game representing that war is more than just you. Like, even if you think it's just these one thing, just you versus the enemy, it's going to involve everyone else, whether they like it or not, whether you like it or not. It's just going to happen. And I just appreciated the way that that game made you try to push forward and say, I have to activate this city. I really need their units to fight with me. I have to activate the, I need to make sure these people will let me hide out in their stronghold or whatever. And I, I just liked that aspect of, you know, war is bigger than the two main forces, even if we might not always know that. Again, war, what is it good for? Board Apparently, games. board game topics. That's basically it. But I think that's going to cover most of that topic. I, I don't, there's other war games we have, depending on your definition of war game. Polis fight for the is it hegemony? Hegemony? Hege- Polis fight for the hegemony has been re-implemented in a new revamped game just called Polis, 
The new one looks beautiful. I have the older one that I wanted forever and I love it. It's very much more of an economy game, a little bit more area control economy version. Um, we've got 1989 Dawn of Freedom that we still haven't played. We have Imperial Struggle, which is another war game that we have not played. We have Twilight Horn of Africa. We have Twilight Struggle. Yeah, is it Red Horn of Africa? I think it's Red Horn of Africa. It's their like 30-minute lunchtime version of Twilight Struggle. I'm excited to try it, and I think that we should do a comparison episode. Absolutely, we should. But we need to play Twilight Struggle as well when we do. Um, but we have multiple other ones we haven't played. There's a lot in war games, and some people's definition of war games won't align with yours. Some people will also be shitheads about their definition of war games. But for the most part, there's almost something for everyone, depending on how deeply you want to go, how complex you want to go, and what subject or topic or part of the world that you want to focus on. So highly recommend digging into war games in whatever capacity. And speaking of war, we should determine what is the best Oreo. And now, join us for a Malthouse Games podcast special, Bite Size Question. So, before we do the question, let's try this last Oreo. This Oreo is another golden. However, it is lemon cream. Mm-hmm. So, golden Oreo cookie with lemon cream, lemon cream. Oh, God. I'm going to skip ahead to the question. The question of the episode is, what's your favorite Oreo? This one. This is my favorite Oreo. This, this is now your favorite? This one defeats the dark chocolate Oreo thins. This is my favorite Oreo. It's really good. Haley never dips it in, like, obviously we use almond milk. Haley never dips it in almond milk. I think it's actually very good in almond milk. Well, for me, lemon and milk is how I make curdled milk whenever you're, you're cooking. Because when we put lemon juice in milk, it helps to curdle it. And that doesn't sound appetizing to me. So this one is one I much prefer to enjoy with tea or by its lonesome. It is very, very good. I like that a lot, but I also love, like, the amount. It's so hard to find, like, a vegan lemon cake or lemon bar, or something like that. And it's just something about it is so good. But the lemon Oreo, highly recommend. They are very good. I think my favorite Oreo, I honestly think mine is just those dark chocolate thins. I like. I feel like Oreos all over the place, but I feel like Double Stuffed has the perfect cookie to cream proportions. Single has too little cream. Mega has way too much cream. But I think thins have a perfect proportion, which I know is weird because like, mathematically they're not the same as a double stuff it's not you know whatever but something about those thin cookies especially in the dark chocolate oh they're so good but i think that's gonna do it for the episode today i want to give a shout out to our patreon patrons so thank you so much to alan jennifer and cliff for supporting us on patreon at a level in which you get shouted out on the podcast if you want to be like them or like any of our other amazing patrons head to patreon.com slash malthouse games you can also send us an email contact at malthousegames.com with a game we should cover, a topic you want us to discuss, a question to answer, or if you think there's a beer or drink or snack you want us to review on the show, because I'd be fine with snacks. Snacks are good. Uh, you can find us on social media at Malthouse Games. You can find Haley at S-Q-U-I-R-R-E-L-Y-G-E-K. That is at Squirrely Geek. I think that that's everything today. I need to start editing because I have about two hours to get this out. So thank you so much for tuning in and listening to the Maltest Games podcast. Until next time, sit back, relax, grab a drink, and play some games. We'll see you folks later. Goodbye. Bye.